I think COVID is, it's only going to, I hope, make the idea of breaking through and breaking in a little more, I don't know, utilitarian, a little more democratic, like in the same way that it's much easier to become a filmmaker now, there are plenty of challenges to becoming successful, but theoretically much easier to become a filmmaker with the technology that allows you to, you know, make a film in your house for lack of a better way of putting it final cut pro or whatever, like you can do it on your computer. I think we're going to see similar things in the acting world where people are going to be, I mean, you look at this girl, Rachel Ziegler, who I think that's the name, the West side story. Like, I think you're going to see more stories like that. Look, the movie star business isn't what it was, right? There's no. still Leo DiCaprio. There's still Brad Pitt. Yeah. There's still Robert Downey Jr., although his last movie struggled. But like for the most part, these movies are the stars themselves, the Star Wars and the Marvel and the X-Men and, and all these things. And I think it does. The good news about that is the challenge is you have a declining middle class. You have people who are making six and even seven figure incomes as number three, four, five, six on the call sheet on these movies. And there's no longer going to get paid what they were getting paid because the movie star on the flip side is I think you're going to have opportunities for lesser known people, people from much more diverse backgrounds, culturally, ethnically, racially diverse backgrounds to, to break in because there's less of a need to just, yeah, it's a zoom world right now and in a, in a remote audition world right now. And I don't think that's going to change. And I'm not, I would have any advice, but I would just say, in general, I think that can be a that can be a good thing for people in, in your position. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. I'm your host, Michelle Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. Thanks for listening, and let the episode begin. This week, I have a really interesting mentor to share with you. Ron West is a managing partner and founder of Throughline Entertainment in California. Throughline is both a management and a production company. They manage some of Hollywood's most well-known actors and writers, with clients including Academy Award winner Allison Janney, Michael Sarah, Eric Stone Street, Emily Van Camp, Sarah Silverman, John Hawks, six-time Emmy Award winner Barry Julian, and Emmy Award winner Kirk Ellis, to name a few. The list is top tier. Uh, in addition to management, the company also currently has multiple projects in production, including the second season of The Great on Hulu, starring Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt, Steven Soderbergh's Wireless, which is now available on Quibi, and projects for Comedy Central, Netflix, feature films, and more. Ron has stories, guys. Like Stan Brooks, he also started off in the mailroom, this time for ICM, International Creative Management Agency, which is one of the top agencies in the country, climbing the ranks to agent after only a year and nine months before working his way up to vice president and head of television talent at only 29. He was the agency's youngest ever department head. He talks about driving Natalie Portman and her mother to different studios when she was only 12, assisting agents Bill Block and Brian Mann. For context, Bill is now the current CEO of Miramax. And in 2002, he followed his instincts and left ICM to form Throughline Management with his partners Chris Henze and J.B. Roberts. We talk about how they decide what productions to take on, what makes a good agent, and why he was good at it, why he moved from an agent to a manager. And how he divides an average workday between production, administrative, managing clients, and development or reading scripts. He talks about what he turns down, what he learns from it, and what he takes on. Bidding wars over scripts and production starting up again. Welcome, Ron West. All right. Hi, Ron. How are you? Well, thanks. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thank you so much for being a part of this, for being a guest on Mentors on the Mic. How are I you thought, doing? You know, uh, I'm doing fine, thanks. I, it's funny It's funny because I'm on phone calls all day, every day. And one of the... And, and I'm, I'm doing my business, right? So I'm managing 
we'll get into that, but what I do and managing writers and actors and producing material. And, you know, there's nothing more common in any business setting, any call than the the kind of initial small talk. But now I feel like when people say, how are you doing? The answer is always more earnest. It's more honest. It's more detailed. So every time I hear it now, or I ask it, I lean forward in my chair a little more than I might have in the past, but, um, but I'm fine. Thank you for yeah. asking. And, no, I, uh, I appreciate that response. Through this. Yeah. I appreciate that response because I, I, first of all, I always feel like I ask, how are you and actually mean it? Like I want to know, I, but also you'd think that there'd be a lack of connection that comes from having to do all these types of calls and zoom sessions and stuff. So no, I think the opposite. I think yeah. because of the intrinsic lack of connection in our world right now, people are seeking connections. I heard a podcaster, mm say the other day that he starts out every conversation with where are you and anybody who says fine he puts he postpones the conversation he's like that person's not ready because they didn't answer what they asked they reflexively answered what they thought i asked they weren't really listening so i love that um, i'll have to come up with my own question my alternative to where are you yeah that sounds good and then Uh, also just apply a little (laughs) arrogance yeah it's a little bit a little bit it might not be my style But anyway, I wanted to ask you, let's start with the age old question. How did you start in the entertainment industry? I graduated Brandeis and having, if I'm being really honest, this was in 1992, having not really attended much of class or done much work. I was really not a serious student at all. I I produced theater while I was at school and I was very serious about that. I had a lot of fun, but I just I was quite directionless and I went to law school for a year, mostly because I was just avoiding the real world. (laughs) That wasn't for me. I left and needed to start a life. I got married very young. I'm now divorced and remarried, but I got married at 22, maybe 23. And, um, I needed, I needed a career. So, um, it all made sense in retrospect because of all the theater I had produced and I used to DJ parties when I was in college or whatever, but rest assured there was no game plan at all when I just kind of impulsively said, well, maybe I'll work at one of the talent agencies. I hear, you know, I hear that's a good hub of activity or, or some such thing. So I interviewed, um, I took advantage of the few relationships I had in town, one of which was with Mike Pitt, who you had on another show. And Mike's dad was an agent at ICM at the time. And he represented Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jenna Rollins and Dudley Moore. And um, he was a very impressive guy. And I'd stayed at their house. So I, I knew him a little bit. And he introduced me to the woman who ran the mailroom at ICM. And then I had similar connections at a couple of other places, all peripheral, none of them substantial. But this was kind of the heyday of agenting. So it wasn't that hard to get a job in the mailroom because they certainly wouldn't have hired me if it were. Um, and I started in January of 1994 at ICM in the mailroom. And I'm always kind of amused at, you know, I've told this story because that's just the way the world works. I've told the story so many times over the years, generally speaking, people just nod, but every once in a while you get this kind of hysterical frenzy of like, you you started in the mailroom. I've heard these stories and as though it's some kind of mysterious entry point or whatever, but the reality is like someone needs to deliver the mail and it may as well be the guys making what I was making at the time, which was like, 300 bucks a week or a little less than $275 a week. And the truth is about mailrooms is they're, they're, they're clearing houses of information and activity. And, you know, it's like a good way to learn who people are and where people's offices are. And, um, just the most rudimentary aspects of being an assistant, which is of course, when you go into the mailroom as a trainee at one of these agencies, your ultimate goal, you want to get on somebody's desk. And that's really where the learning happens. So, I started at ICM in January. It was a very, very disorganized, almost chaotic trainee program then. And I kind of don't do well in chaos. So I was the complete loser who like organized the mailroom and labeled everything and came up <laughs> with it. And then you know, I have friends now who I started in the mailroom with and they, they just must despise me when they think about those stories. What a ridiculous eager beaver I was. But I worked really hard. I mean, I literally, when somebody's office would call and say they needed something picked up for FedEx, like I would run up the stairs instead of taking the elevator. I don't know why. I don't, I, I really don't know what got into me. I remember very early on in the first few weeks there, 
you know, you get variety in the Hollywood reporter and you're stuffing it in 200 mail slots every day. And I remember a guy named Todd Feldman who started around the same time I did went on to be a very successful agent at W at ICM and later at, at William Morris or at CAA. Todd was talking about how some movie opened or didn't open. And I'd literally never heard the phrase a movie opening. I didn't know what it meant. And I think oh. he grew up, his dad was in the entertainment business and he, like he just had a frame of reference that I completely lacked. You know, that was a disadvantage for me. I think I, it was one of the first times I realized like, oh, there's a vernacular here. Like there's a whole culture I'm just not plugged into. But again, that's why you start in the mailroom because you're, it's a safe place to learn and make mistakes and figure things out. So I hustled and then I got a phone call one day. Oh, this is a funny story. I got a phone call one day or the guy that ran the mailroom at the time got a phone call. They needed somebody to drive. There was a young actress. ICM had just hired a woman named Aline Kashishan, who was in a casting associate of Juliet Taylor, who cast Woody Allen's movies forever. Aline was like one of her associates and had just, they just hired her as an agent. She lived in New York, Aline, and she had this young client who's coming out in a couple of movies. It was her only client, as far as I remember at the time. And this girl was coming out. She was 12 or 13. I think she was 12. She was coming out here with her mother and they were taking a series of studio meetings and they needed somebody to drive her around. And this guy, Mark was like, Wes, you do it because like my car was slightly less shitty than everybody else's. <laughs> so I ended up driving Natalie Portman, Natalie Hirschlag and her mom around LA for like seven or eight days. Wow. Um, and like it was the best experience ever. She was this little 12 year old. I don't even want to say precocious because she was, she was much more kind of self contained than that, but she was this lovely kid who it turns out lived on the street where I used to play street hockey in Jericho four days a week when I was growing up and her dad, you know, like I, that's where I, my grandparents live by the way, still Jericho. So I grew yeah. up in Syosset and she went to Syosset high school. She went to the same high school, but Jericho is the little, there's a little enclave of Jericho that's in Syosset school district, wow. the F street fair and fountain and whatever. Wow. So anyway, we just like, it was a lovely chapter in my life. And in some way we, we, we grew up in the business together, although we've, you know, haven't seen her in years, yeah. but uh, it was just a, it was a, it was a sweet little chapter anyway. So, so I get this call from a guy named Jason Spitz, who is now, I think he's a manager now, but he was at w, William Morris and WME for many years as an agent. Jason was the senior assistant trainee on a desk for a guy named Bill Block, who was a senior executive who had just come back to ICM after ICM bought out his company. And they needed like a number two assistant and just temporarily because their assistant met someone over the weekend and ran off with her to get married. <laughs> Casual. Um, yeah, casual. <laughs> LA. Um, LA. So I ended up going on what was supposed to be a temporary assignment. And I was there for like a few months and I learned a lot, affirmative and negative, but I learned a lot. And then the opportunity came to work for this guy named Brian Mann, who was in the talent department, which is what I wanted. Bill was more of a lit guy who oh. um, worked in film and television and who was really busy and he was in staff meetings all day. I remembered because I had like temped for him you know, that's what you do when you're in the mailroom and they need extra help. Yeah. And, um, and I was like, I want to go to that desk because then I'll be the number one guy or whatever. So I talked to Bill. He was nice. He let me go. I went to work for Brian and he kind of became a mentor of mine. I mean, funny enough, I literally just spoke to Brian yesterday because we're wow. putting a project together nice. that I'm hoping one of his clients stars in, but, um, fingers crossed for you. Uh, yeah. But so I worked for Brian and Brian and that really became and Brian turns out he was in both departments. He's really more television than film. Okay. And the TV department was a little more familial, a little more, you know, I see him was a tough place back then. The culture yeah. was aggressive and predatory. And, you know, I was still a nice kid from New York or whatever. So it turned out to be a better fit for me. And then like I had this crazy trajectory where nine months after, let me get this right. I was, I basically became an agent about a year and nine months after I started at the company. So I don't really remember exactly when I started for Brian, but like about a year into that, there was an opening and they promoted me. I don't know. I'm sorry. Did, did you, no, did you I was it? like, I, I had some research on like all that stuff. Oh. I know that like 2000, you became VP, but I don't think I had the actual dates for when you were the I don't remember assistant. the dates, but I think I was, I think I got promoted like around September or October of 1995 me and this guy, Jason Barrett, who's still a buddy, who he's a manager too. He represents Zac Efron and LL Cool J. And anyway, 
Jason and I got promoted on the same day and literally shared an office and kind of grew up together in the business. And was that quick to go from assistant to agent? Very. Yeah, it was, it was quick. It would never, ever happen now. It's much more form formalized and regimented now. It just takes longer. It was through a series of circumstances. Some of them great. Like one guy who was kind of on a track just left because he had rich parents and wanted to go work in their business. One guy beyond tragically committed suicide, like a guy who just a wonderful guy who grew up very close to you. His parents actually lived in the same building that my friend Steven lives on or his parents 79th between York and East end. He, yeah. um, Tragic. Yeah. Just horrible. So, um, so it was, it was fast and I became an agent and it was just trial by fire in terms of just figuring shit out. And I just, you know, I've had some good instincts over the years, clearly some bad ones at times too, but I just had this agents are, can be very full of shit. It happens that I work for a guy in Brian Mann, who's the furthest thing from full of shit. I don't think I've ever heard him tell a lie, but in general agents can be full of shit. And I just had this instinct really early on, like with my clients, like I'm just going to be the guy who tells the truth. And if I don't know something, I'm going to say, I don't know. And if I say, I'm going to get back to you, I'll actually call you back. And just that was enough to make me see a lot of you apart. Yeah. While I was figuring it all out. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, it's that, anyway, I, I had some success. Yeah. Well, well what, made, what made you hold on to that? Like what made you go like, this is how like instinctively, this is what I think will is, is what I want to do or how I want to be authentic to these clients. I don't really know. Yeah. Um, I don't really know other than that when you don't know anything, you really, you know, and something seems to be working, I suppose you tend to, you just become determined to stick with it. I don't yeah. know. Um, I got very lucky in that respect. There was, there were a few things, there were a few times along the way that I just got lucky trusting my instincts. Are you still in touch with Bill Block? Every once in a while. So Bill now runs Miramax, Miramax which yeah. just sold to uh, Paramount or they have a joint venture with Paramount and they have a piece of IP in their, I have a client a very high-end writer client, a book author and a screenwriter and a showrunner. And Miramax optioned one of his projects long predating Bill. So I called him pretty recently to ask about some rights issues. And then he goes, I hear you do a pretty good invitation to me, which I know he meant, I hear like, fuck you. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I'm not allowed to curse in this podcast. But I do a very good, a very mean Bill block. And so he asked me to do it for him. He was like, it's good. That's funny. (laughs) but I, we're not close. I was such yeah. a, I was, I was a baby when I worked for him. I, yeah. I, you know, I wasn't, I was just a functionary for him. And I think Bill was at a little bit of a challenging place in his life and his career at that moment. He really has done a great job of reinventing himself and carving out some amazing territory for himself in the last decade or two. So anyway, you became an agent, became an agent in record time. I worked hard and I remember there was this television show at CBS called Nash Bridges. It was Don Johnson. Oh. Um, it was through a company called Reicher that doesn't exist anymore. That was run by a guy named Rob Keneally, who's now an agent at CAA. And there've been all sorts of, if you Google the show, what probably will come up is all the profit participation lawsuits because it was actually a super profitable show. Oh. So that show was casting Don Johnson, like casting, meaning CBS had picked it up. And it was time to figure out who was going to play all the various roles other than Don Johnson. And Mindy Marin and John Papsidera were partners then. They're casting directors. And they were they cast the show. And it was and I was covering them, meaning as a talent agent, you cover a territory. You might cover CBS right. and NBC. You might cover Warner Brothers and Sony. Yep. So I, I don't even remember who I covered other than them. But I covered I covered the show and I and anyway, I put, I basically cast, the entire cast was ICM clients. Wow. Harry Fukunaga and Kristen Scott Thomas and Annette O'Toole played Don Johnson's wow. wife. And there was one other person. And I remember being like singled out in the company-wide staff meeting because if you've read it all about the dispute with the W between the WGA and the ATA in the last 18 years or two months, but it's over the issue of packaging, like capital right. P packaging, where, where agencies ostensibly own a piece of the shows that they're putting together. Right. Incredibly lucrative business. And that yeah. was kind of the heyday of it. ICM represented the creators of Friends and made... Who went to um, Brandeis. 
who went to yeah, Marta did. And I think David might have. Yeah. I don't think Both Kevin did. No. Um, yeah. I don't think Kevin Bright did, but I think Marta and David did crane. Yeah. And Kevin. But like, I would be surprised if ICM made less than $75 million from that show. And Nash Bridges was never going to be that big, but it was, it, it represented at the time millions of dollars for ICM. Yeah. And so they took it really seriously. And when I jammed all those clients in there, they singled me out or in a staff meeting. And I, it, I think it was the moment where I was like, Oh, I can do this. Yeah. So, and then I just went on a run and I signed internally. I saw, you know, Kira Sedgwick and Juliana Margulies and Richard Dreyfus And like, I built up a client list of people yeah. a of whom I signed myself, but most of them were already internally clients, internal clients, but I was making a name for myself with the feature guys and they needed help. And so I, I had some success and then they asked me to run the talent department, which right. I did the TV talent department, which I did from, I guess I was about 29 years old. So it would have been you were the youngest one, right? You were at the time you're the youngest. That's what they said. Yeah. I, it, it might've been true. Yeah. Uh, at ICM. <laughs> 29 is very young to do, to do that. To I know, but like Frankie Blondes ran Paramount at 29. So that's m- way more impressive. So wait, that, so how, let's, let's go back for a second. So how'd you get those clients? I mean, I know you said some of them were already internal ICM clients, but you know, yeah. for the ones that you acquired, how did you get them? You know, it's, it's, it's the advantage of having a platform at a big agency yeah. is people want to be with you. And you know, you, you're certainly competing with CAA and William Morris, William Morris. At the time, but you're not competing with, a lot of other companies. Yeah. So, and you know, I, I, you know, there are, I'm sure we'll get into this later when it comes to the management stuff, which has yeah. been my life for the last 17 years, but there are a number of different ways that you can be a successful talent representative. Some people have incredibly good taste. Some people have, some people are just hustlers. Some people are un- monumentally aggressive. Some people, you know, are just the best schmoozers of all time. Like, I'm not, I think I was just a hustler. I don't think I really had a fully fleshed out point of view about anything, but, um, but over the years, I really started to develop taste. I mean, there are people, there are some agents, managers who are like, you know, Bob Baffert, like the famous horse trainer who can just like walk onto some horse farm in Kentucky at seven in the morning with the dew coming up off the grass and then just kind of point and go that one and just can pick out a full you know, chewing on the grass and be like that, you know, that's the horse that's going to win the Derby for me in three years. Um, That's not me, but there are people like that. I mean, there are people just with magnificent tastes. Um, But um, yeah. So just curious uh, at the time though, I mean, how did, how did that process work for ACM? So did people, did like managers call you guys and were like, Hey, I have a great client, blah, blah, blah. Like how did you get your clientele? I mean, you said, I mean, obviously you have the name, but like, how did those people come to you? You know, you develop relationships with managers, with attorneys, with okay. casting people, casting executives. You watch TV. Um, I used to tell people when I was running the department, it's like when if you watch an episode, it, this is it's a little different now. Yeah. So, I mean, my my management is much different, but like if you're at ICM and you watch some episode of, you know, I'm trying to think of shows that were big at the time. Uh, uh, you know, Law and Order, That's and you see sad. somebody give like a crazy good performance. Law and yeah. Order is a good example because like there actually are good guest star roles yeah. on that show. The main, main characters don't really have much to do. I mean, it's you know pointing fingers and asking questions, but it's like the meaty the stuff. Meaty is stuff. Guest roles. Guest stars. Like if you're an agent at a at a place with a big platform and you see somebody give a great performance and you like write them a letter or call their manager or whatever, like they're going to lean forward in their chair and nobody else is doing that. Yeah. So. That was probably some of it. I don't honestly remember how I got most of these clients, but I mean, if you ask me in any individual one, I could, but like you just build a list, you know, you become a guy that you become a dependable guy. You know, it it harkens, it it goes back a little bit to what Mike Pitt was talking to you about when he was talking, but it's like, if you make yourself dependable, you're going to make a name for yourself in that way. So that's fair. So I built a list and then, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, I abandoned the list because I left right. aging to become a manager. I mean, right. I ran the department for uh, probably three years. And um, I just instinctively had this sense that I needed to go strike out on my own. I was much more of an entrepreneurial personality than in, uh, more of an employer than an employee Got and it. personality. And I, I always knew that I wanted to. And um it just was time. Yeah. So, uh, and was there a clause that you could take anyone obviously or no? Not really not like either. that because we, no, it was more along the lines of like management is not a predatory business. Right. And, and so just as a 
code of conduct is really, you don't steal people's clients. So all my clients, you know, most of them had managers. Some of them came with me. Um, Yeah. um, Some of them came with me and, you know, are still clients to this day. Yeah. But um, for the most part, I was starting over a little bit. So why, Mm -hmm. why not build your own agency? Why a management company? It's not, it's a good question. And nobody's, very few people have asked that over the years. It's really, you know, it's, you're going to see a little more of it now. People are going to leave agencies and form their own agencies, I think. But for the most part, agencies, um, the model in an agency is just different than the model at a management company. It's just agencies are, they require more capital, more infrastructure. You, they, it's, it's just, it's management is a little leaner and it's a little, and, and the other thing is, I don't, I can answer this question with the benefit of hindsight, but I was really, as it turns out, more of a manager than an agent. I, um, I don't, uh, it took me a while. We can get into this, but it took me a while to really figure out what my niche was going to be as a man, as a manager. Yeah. But it turns out I was much more managerial than I thought. Got um, it. So you might, you might've already been like, you know, playing more of a manager as an agent anyway. So when you, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there was. Yes. I mean, yes and no. I don't want to complicate yeah. things too much, but like, yes and no. Like I, I had tight relationships with some of my clients, but I also, when you're an agent, to some extent, you're skimming the surface more because you're dealing in so much greater volume. I must've had 50 clients when I was an agent mm-hmm. and I was covering studios and networks and you're constantly being asked to join staff meetings and other people's meetings. And you just don't have a lot of time to be reflective and thoughtful. And so you're, you become really good at doing the things that need to get done. Right. And that's not the job of a manager. The job of a manager is to be expert in a lot of things and to be thoughtful and have vision and right. You know, but we, 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 and do you have a smaller yeah. roster? I imagine like a smaller personal roster. I do. Way? I mean, I probably only have 10, 12 clients. I mean, I mean that's and, a big and difference. Of those 10, 12, probably five that I'm really deeply involved with on yeah. an everyday basis because I have people helping me and supporting me with other clients. Right. And because I also run the company and because I'm very involved in our, some of our, many of our producing jobs components. So, you know, my day is divided between administrative stuff. Right. Helping people thrive and be well and grow and, you know, whatever, finding different ways to help support them and help them be successful and work through problems. And then managing my business and yeah. dealing with producing and... Right. Well, so, I mean, we're definitely going to talk about that because that's a whole other facet of not just, you're not just managing actors or managing clients, you're managing this production company as well. So there's right. a lot of umbrella, there's sort of like a lot of roles to through line. So wait, so, so now I guess we could talk about it. We created through line, you created it with two partners, right? Mm-hmm. I went to lunch with this guy, Chris Henze, who's now my partner. And Chris was making a move. He was at a, he was like the rainmaker at a small management company and he was getting job offers from management 360, although they weren't called that at the time. And, or maybe they just were. Um, and Brillstein and a few other places. And he really didn't know any of them because he had been a manager most of his adult life. So he was, he needed some help navigating the, the kind of landscape of talent management companies. And I knew all of them because either I had clients with them or somebody that worked for me had clients for them. So I was just helping him out as a friend. And the more he would talk about his philosophy of management, I remember he was talking about one of these big companies and he was saying, you know, he went to meet with them and they... They were like, oh, you'd be great on blah, blah, blah's team. And he was thinking, he was saying to me, like, that's not what management is. Like, you don't just join a team like a person. So I, I just started to go like, that's interesting to me. Like that level of attention to detail. And anyway, I, one day I just was like, maybe we should do something together. And he was like, really? And so, and then he had been talking to this guy, J.B. Roberts, who's now... So we just kind of sat down at like Jerry's Deli in Westwood and we're like, what would a company look like? And we seemed to be... I brought a tremendous amount to the table, I think, in terms of my experience and my profile, yeah. but I didn't know what clients I would have. And they right. brought a ton to the table in terms of their experience and their client. So we just it just kind of felt sure. right. And it was like three of us and an assistant or two in a temporary office space. And I tell this to people all the time now who leave agencies and management companies, and it happens, as I'm sure you can imagine, every day. It's like the clients you know are going to go with you. There's always going to be some that you're completely wrong about that don't. And mm-hmm. the client doesn't occur to you for a minute that they would. There's always going to be one or two 
who do. Yeah. So don't take anything for granted and don't be too dismissive of anything. Yeah. So I built up a little list. I had one high profile client, really high. I mean, plenty of clients who were working, but like one real TV star who left her manager to come with me Wow! and it didn't work out. It was like a great lesson for me. And like, I wasn't ready for that yet. Even though I was a successful agent, I should have waited to sign somebody like that. Not that I'd never solicited her. She was very wanted to come with you. Yeah. We had a really good relationship and I had done a good job and I think she had a strained relationship with her manager. Right. So anyway, you know, I think, yeah. So it's, it's kind of a lesson I learned later on, but one of the lessons is like, you have to figure out what you want to be as a manager, as an agent too, but really as a manager, like what it is, what's your secret sauce? What's what it is that you do that makes you unique and special. And then you have to, and you have to be right. Yeah. It, you know, it has to be a good fit. You have to like, yeah. But then you have to like attract the kinds of clients that want that from you. Right. Like, you know, like it, it and be attractive to the kinds of clients who want that. Yeah. And that's kind of trick. Yeah. So actors talk about that all the time. Like what makes us different? What makes, you know, you know, trying to attract the right projects, but also making sure that we project to the world. I mean, I think it's very similar in that way. What's your niche? What's your focus? What's your strength? That's exactly right. And I, I think, I think I know people, I know a couple of managers in my business who are truly successful, who are terrible. Like they're just babysitters. They're glorified babysitters. I shouldn't say terrible. They're terrible for me. Yeah. Um, terrible you wouldn't for me. hire them. I wouldn't hire them. They don't bring a lot of what I perceive as value to the yeah. table. And, but they have great businesses because they, you know, I, this is a true story. We have a client, a high profile actor who's also doing some writing and I'm developing. So he's not my client as an actor, but he's my partner is He's the best guy ever. So I, and I knew him for quite a while and I optioned the rights to a piece of material that it turns out he was passionate about. He was trying to get the rights himself. He had no idea that I'm the one that got them. So it was like this crazy coincidence because it wasn't a a super high profile book. So we end up developing it together and he and I become pretty close in the process. And his wife is a big, you know, is a star and her manager is a guy who falls exactly along the lines of what I just described to you. Mm. He's a babysitter, like pick out a dress for a premiere, shoulder to cry on, honey, you're the best. But like, I know his wife and she's a serious actress. Like she's a, she's a, you know, she'll win an Oscar one day. Yeah. And I always was kind of puzzled by that relationship. And so I said to the client, I was like, this is after months of spending a lot of time together. Right. And we have to feel comfortable yeah. with them to say something like, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I'm just curious, like, what's that relationship like? And he immediately was like, I love the guy. He's like, when she's melting down over this, he's there. And I realized it was a really interesting moment for me because I realized, oh, like, that's what she needs. Like, yeah. That's, you know, and so it was, a, yeah. it was just, a, it was a, something of an epiphany for me. And I almost can't overstate what a. Yeah. Uh, no, I love that because it's, it's almost like you're learning kind of like what you're saying about attracting the right clients. It's like, well, although that client would be great in some ways that might not be the right client for you based on what you provide and what value you provide for your clients. It's but that's what she needs. She needs that shoulder to cry. Not only I don't want to, I'm not capable. Like I'm, yeah, I'm it's not I'm your thing. Fucking old. I'm too, like, I'm not, yeah. that's not what I'm interested in. So, interesting. So, and it took me, look, my marriage fell apart. Like I am divorced and remarried now, but like, it's not a coincidence that I left a job where I had 50 clients and I'm staff meetings all day. And I'm just like the intensity of the agency life is difficult to imagine. And then I went to something more quieter and thoughtful and less, you know, what's the word? Hectic? Uh, yeah. Distracting. Distracting. Less, and kind of had a come to Jesus with myself, like without even yeah. knowing, like, you know, you just, there, this is what I say to like my, my daughter's friends who, cause they, both of my daughters went to USC. So they have all these friends who want to be in the entertainment business. Yeah. But what I always say is like, if you're mentally and emotionally together now, you can come out the other side of a career in entertainment. Okay. Yeah. But if you're not, you're never going to get a mentally and emotionally healthier. You'll never be healthier than you, than when you started, because Mm -hmm. it's not a business that places a lot of value in that. 
it'll be very interesting to see what our world is like post COVID because I think there are great numbers of people who are learning a lot about themselves that otherwise wouldn't have had the opportunity. Yeah. Um, They forced everyone to have like a break and like maybe have time to self-reflect when they wouldn't normally. Maybe just self-reflect when they wouldn't normally. Yeah. I think that's right. So anyway, so I did this. It took me, as I said, a while to become a good manager, to really understand myself and understand, you know, I was interested in producing and I had some small successes early on, you know, very early on. I had a client who's going to be my next call after I'm done with talking to you, but a client who was an actor on an NBC series, but like number six on the call sheet, five of the call sheet, really talented, was always going to work in my mind but had no writing experience and he expressed some interest in, in writing. And I, he said he had written, you know, he said he had had something he wanted to show me and it was structurally a mess and there probably wasn't a fully fleshed out show there, but there was something really special about his voice. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, this is, this is the plan. This is how we're going to do this. And I, I exposed it to a very specific executive who had, something who was invested in him and his show because she was developing his show at NBC and who had posters of like Truffaut and freaks and geeks on her wall in her office. Mm. She just had esoteric taste. There's a networks comic. And I gave it to her and I said, this, I'm not trying to sell this. I'm trying to develop it. Like, and like I got a call from literally Kevin Riley, who literally was the head of NBC at the time. Yeah. And he goes, I want to make this show. Wow. And I, I want you guys to produce it with Conan O'Brien because this is twisted and dark and he does twisted and dark well and he's expressed an interest in producing. And But the problem was that my client's show was still on the air. Right. But right. We, all knew, we all knew it was going off the air. So he okay. goes... He goes, I don't know how to, I want to call him, but how do I handle it? And I was like, he's realistic. Don't worry. I already told him. That. And he goes, right. okay, good. And then he called them up and the, the next, I would say this was like, Wednesday and they had a Tuesday maybe and they had their last taping on Friday only he knew it was the last taping wow and then like Monday morning we were on a plane to New York to meet Conan wow he became our partner in that we shot a pilot it ultimately didn't go forward it probably wasn't a show but it was one of many learning experiences for both of us and you know he's now a high-end showrunner under a multi-million dollar deal at universal and in post-production on a pilot right now and writing something with dennis leary and um you know it's so that was a real success for me that was a real win like a small incremental win but even then i didn't know what i was doing like it takes time to know yourself and to did you have a desire to produce before that or not really before what? Before, before this show. that particular yes. pilot. Yeah. yeah. I already said something. I had sold something to CBS that a client of mine was writing, an actor client. And I said to him, like, in the days after I left to go to do this, he was my client as a manager, also agent and manager. I said, how would you feel about me producing this with you? So he's like, yeah. So I made, I called the head of the, actually, she became the head of the network. She was head of drama at the time, Nina Tassler. And so she made me a producer on it because she knew right. I... I sold it. So yeah, that never went anywhere. But yes, I knew I wanted to, but I didn't know what it meant. And then when I started producing, I remember shooting a, you know, you just like everything, you just make a million mistakes and you, you learn where you have some, I had these incredible epiphanies. Like I remember sitting in my first casting session and I've now, you know, I've now had millions, literally hundreds of them. Yeah. Um, But I remember the first one, I don't even remember who our casting directors are. I think I do, but I don't know. But I just remember sitting there and like, you know, this actor reads and then this actor goes out of the room and then the assistant comes in and says, I just got a phone to an assistant at this agency. And they said, this person's not available and this person's offer only. And the network called and said this. And I realized it was like, if you spent your entire life eating Entenmann's pies and like all of a sudden you're in the Entenmann's pie factory and you're like, oh, this is, this is what this is like. I'm on the other side of this or even yeah. more like if you're in like a market yeah. research meeting for Entenmann's pies and you're like I am the market yeah. so it's like I had spent at this point 10 years on that end of the phone listening to them go this is the feedback this is the whatever and now it was almost like I don't want to overstate the case because let's be clear we're not creating cold fusion but it was almost like Russell Crowe in Beautiful Mind where it's like 
oh, no, here's the grand unified theory of what's happening. That agent's lying to you. This person mm-hmm. is not off early because I know for a fact they're reading on this other thing. But also that network executive wants that actor who she said might not be available for this show because I heard right. this in a staff meeting. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, here's where I can bring value. Like I can help my writer and these casting people like navigate this. And here's, and by the way, what you also learn is, again, by making mistakes is you learn like, Oh, I should have just shut the fuck up right there. Mm-hmm. I should have just kept my mouth shut. Like it's tape night. It's you know, like by the time you get this is a multicam show, like it's tape night. Like the actors know their line. Do we have our coverage? Like all the shots, and like, and then just sit to the side and do right. nothing. You know, like at this point, my job is over until we get into post. Anyway, you learn by making mistakes and you learn by occasionally stumbling into having done something well. But I loved it. I really did. I don't love being on set 24 hours a day. Right. The movie coming together now that it's it's probably going to require me being on set for two or three months. And it's already given me some anxiety, but it's a, I need to be. And it's a huge, huge opportunity for us. Is it nearby? Is at least near, near your it's set in Afghanistan and Washington, D.C., and I don't know yet where we're going to, you know, we're working all that out Got right it. now. It might be Utah or New Mexico. It might be Calgary or it might be overseas. I wow. just don't know. Well, what I'm sensing, I mean, for me personally, what I'm getting from a lot of your stories specifically, and I'll say it, I mean, I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but you, you've developed, you, you have a very strong instinct for, I think, people and for stories. You, you know, if you're going into just your sort of rise at ICM and just moving at a certain time, it just feels like I'm, I'm getting a lot. I'm like, obviously there's trial and error and you make mistakes, but you have a very strong instinct, I think, for people and for stories. Yes. Yeah, so here's what I would say. I definitely do. Yeah. And I'm definitely wrong sometimes. So yeah. I remember we had an assistant like four months ago. I don't know if you remember the story about these boys from Australia. This was right around the late 19th, early 20th century. These boys from Australia who like basically took out a boat like as a prank. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get the meat of the story wrong. Mm-hmm. They took out the, a boat as a prank and they basically ended up on some island, like straight up Lord of the Flies until they were, until they were discovered months later. And it was a huge story at the time, but it's not a, other than in Australia, it wasn't like part of the folklore of the world or whatever. Anyway, this assistant sent it to me because there was a news break, like, you know, somebody had maybe written a book or something about it, kind of rediscovered this story. And, um, and I, you know, and he sent it to me, I assumed to go like, Hey, we should probably go after the story. Like this is, and I read it and I was like, it's definitely a movie. Like there's no question about it, but like, I don't know, they're Australian and it's period. And I'm not sure there really isn't that much that happens. One of the things I, you know, I read all the, all the articles about it and it's like, they really got along well. Like one of the great things about the article is like, it was anything but Lord of the Flies. They formed their own little society. They had That's a great time. I, I remember that. Cause I, th- yeah. I don't know why I, I just looked this up like not too long ago. It came out not too long. I mean, this is, this is four months ago, five That's months ago. That's why. Okay. So anyway, I was like, yeah, it's not for me. And then like cut to 48 hours later, it was like five producer bidding war. Wow. And I guess to an extent I was wrong, like meaning, I knew that there'd be a there there, but I, it just wasn't for me. Anyway, yeah. all of which is to say my instincts aren't always right. And I'm not, a, it's really you could, more. You could make the case though, that that, you know, instinctively wasn't the right fit for you. I mean, kind of what you were saying before about like the, the client's wife, who that was the right manager for them, you know, like this might not have been the right project for you. Yeah. And then you wouldn't have been able to do the thing that you had time for because you didn't, you said no to that. Yeah. Look, I mean, that's basically exactly what it was. So like, yes. So, but I think uh, some people might do the opposite. They might not listen to their gut or their, their instinct and then take on the project that doesn't make sense for them. And then not only does that project not go as well, or, you know, does not pick up or whatever, but also you're never passionate about it. Yeah. A hundred percent. So all of which is to say, I do have instincts about material. I have instincts about people. They're not always right. I don't even pretend to be always right. Yeah. One of the things about our business is generally speaking, there's more than enough to go around. Yeah. So it's not a zero sum business. Other people don't have to lose for you to win most yep. of the time. I agree. So, and, and I, but I, I could tell this assistant was a little miffed because I didn't, I think he might've thought I didn't take it as seriously as he wanted, but it was really more about, as I said, just, and as you said, like, maybe it's not for me. Yeah. It makes that win when he does get that win. It makes that win even more gratifying because he got a no right before. 
Yeah. And also, as it turns out, like we probably weren't best positioned to, you know, we're not in the business of acquiring material for hundreds of thousands of dollars against millions of dollars. There's just too much good material out there for less. And we don't put the resources to work like that. So, Mm. yeah. Well, that could be kind of the next point. So how do you acquire your content? Like, how do you decide what to work on? Um, uh, so of everything that we, you know, look, we've got in some form of production right now, pre-production, production, production, post-production, we've got about five things. Right. So we're in, we're writing, the writer's room is open on the second season of our show, The Great at Hulu. Yeah. Um, And that show will, will start filming in November through, you know, through, I want to say March. I don't remember the, the exact schedule. And, and that's kind of off and running in terms of creative. We have a movie in post at Quibi, which is now being, because it's Quibi, it's divided into bite size, you know, yeah. it's episodes that Steven Soderbergh is a partner on. Um, that'll air in September. We have a show at Netflix that, um, we have a show at Netflix that was supposed to begin a second season production and then COVID hit. So it's unclear what's going to happen with that. Yeah. Um, we have um, uh, a little movie that, you know, with Michael Shannon and uh, I probably shouldn't say, cause I don't know if it's been announced, but you know, that seems yeah. to be come together. You know, we've got, we've got a lot of things happening, all of which is to say, I don't know what percentage of it. I'd say 60% of it, maybe two thirds is driven by clients. Okay. And not, not not necessarily driven by in the sense that they originated. Sometimes it's material we bring clients, okay. but it's you know it's related to generated by or for the benefit of our clients. Mm. And then um, and then of the rest, some of it is is the result of relationships we may have. Some of it is just material that we went out. So we have this big movie, you know, not big. Budget-wise, it'll probably be in the fifty million dollar range, okay. which is mid-budget nowadays. Yeah, I know. So we have a it's big crazy. movie that's based on um, a piece of material that I optioned in proposal form. There was a seventy-page book proposal that was going around to publishers, and an agent that we work with sent it to me, and um, it was set in the world of the the Air Force during the early days of Operation Anaconda in 2002 when we were going after bin Laden in Afghanistan. And there was a Air Force CCT, a combat control technician named John Chapman, who died very heroically on a mountainside in the early morning hours of March 2002. And he was an undisputed hero, you know, to at the time and won most every award you could win posthumously, he died. But it became clear to some people after the fact, many years after the fact, that that he may not have died quite as early in the battle as was as as they thought. Mm. And in fact, he may have done some insanely heroic things in his with his dying breaths. And through the use of documentary I'm sorry, through the use of archival CIA drone footage and eyewitness accounts, the Air Force pieced together an accounting of what he did on the mountain between when they left him for dead, ostensibly. Wow. Where he killed dozens and dozens of enemy combatants and saved dozens and dozens of American lives. Oh, my God. And, and was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously 17 yeah. years later. Wow. So, so I got this book proposal and started reading it, devouring it in the office the day I got it, which is very unusual. I usually don't do my reading in the office, and I usually don't read anything the day I get it, especially yeah. something not urgent, but I had this weird sense and like, it was 70 pages. Yeah. It was 70 page proposal and like 25 or 30 pages in, we had barely gotten into Chapman. It was mostly the history of the CCT, but I picked up the phone and called the screenwriter friend who I was developing something else with. He was, he's a a guy named Michael Gunn. He's got a degree in military history. He's a very high end screenwriter. I met him when I approached Bradley Cooper about another book that I optioned and Bradley said, you got to meet this guy for that. Even though I don't have time. He was in the middle of star is born. He's like, I don't have time to read that, but you should meet Michael. So we, I meet Michael. We start developing these other things. And I call Michael and I said, what do you know about CCTs? These are the combat control technicians. What do you know about these guys? And Michael said, tell me you have John Chapman's story. Wow. And, and that's when I knew I had to get this. And Michael and I devised this, this, it ended up the subject of like a 14, I don't know if it was 11 or 14, to be honest with you, but those numbers stand out in my head, but a 14 publisher bidding war 
that and and frankly would normally have been optioned for you know a hundred thousand dollars against several million yeah and because of the n- nature of the material and the the excitement in the publishing world and i was able to convince the writer to give it to me for much 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 less than that because i promised to protect his vision mm. and to be honest michael and i together promised to protect his vision and Wow. We laid it off at a studio with a studio partner and we commissioned a script and now we just attached, I can't say yet because we're still in the deal making phase, yeah. but a, but an A-list star and a fantastic director and that we're going to Sounds really good. Yeah. And that had nothing to do with any clients or any, anything. So yeah. Um, a 70 page, I was, I was going to ask, is a 70 page book or 70 page proposal normal? Is that how long those things usually are? No. Eh, various. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a good answer for you because a book proposal isn't a thing. You know, it's yeah. like it, usually books sell on a manuscript, not on a proposal. Right. And proposal is neither here nor there. So, so anyway, that's a good example of something that was not driven by clients or collaborated with clients. Yeah. So I know that, I mean, I know we're going to probably end this soon, unfortunately, but I did want to ask about the great, how, how, just cause that's such a great show. How did you sort of set your sights on that? Was that you? Was that your partners? Have you had a, like a very strong hand in that in some way? I mean, so the great was a feat was a play originally long predating in Australia. Us. Yeah. That by Tony McNamara, who's a longtime client of one of my colleagues, Josh Kesselman. Mm. And he had adapted it from a play into a feature film. At one time he had Nicole Kidman and Annette Benning attached. I think the play Catherine at different points in, in her, in her life. Right. And, and at a certain point, Josh basically said to Tony, if you write this as a TV show, I think I can sell it. Mm. And he wrote it on spec. He adapted it in like three weeks and he, and we gave it to Elle Fanning through her manager. Josh knew Elle and Josh knew her manager very well. Mm. Elle attached herself. Tony gave it to Nick Holt on the set of The Favorite, which he wrote and for which he was not for an Oscar. Yep. And, and it became, you know, it was three networks bidding for it. Wow. Um, and why so, Hulu? Can you talk about that? Or is it just like a, a money thing? Or um, Hulu made the most sense. Um, yeah. They were the right creative partners. They were, they were very passionate. You know, there was one other network that was... Re- there were two other networks that wanted it. And one other network that, you know, there's a strong case to be made that they would have been a great partner. Uh, but these guys offered a production commitment at the time. They didn't offer a production commitment. I mean, it was ultimately Tony's choice. Yeah. So I was also going to ask you too, because I think I remember reading like a deadline article, which may not be the case anymore, but I think it said you guys have a first look deal with A&E. So does that not expand for everything? We don't anymore. Um, We, um, we, I think given where our business is right now, it probably makes more sense for us to be free balls. We're, we've got some things set up around town, including the great that are just more lucrative for us and more, it's just an interesting time to be a free ball. So I don't know that we would never make another first look deal again, but there's something interesting about not doing it. Yeah. Especially now. I mean, there's so many different networks and platforms now, so it's. Yeah. I mean, we have two, we have two shows right now with A&E like, that we developed as part of that deal Yeah, that may get production orders in the next few weeks. Yeah. Uh, one of them at History and one crossed. of them at AMC. Yeah. And if that happens, we'll still be in business with those guys and I adore them. And, right. Uh, but it just was the right time to, to go out on our own a little bit. Yeah. Although it was the middle of COVID. So it's ne- never a bad time to have checks coming in. But yeah, the, the smaller checks now get in the way of the bigger checks later. And so so for the great, obviously, second season, I think, is gearing up. Where are you in that? I mean, I know with COVID, everything's sort of delayed. and so. Yeah. Look, we have 60 clients waiting for start dates for their respective projects yeah and we've got start dates on probably 40 45 of them so things are you know there some of them are pushing we just heard a we have a client's feature at sony that looks like it's going to push a month but like because of the expansion of the streamers you know the hbo max and disney plus and obviously netflix and hulu and amazon prime and everything else like there is a voracious appetite for content and so and then on the network front the networks are struggling a lot 
they're not selling ads and they're forced to give money back to the advertisers right now because of mm-hmm. rating these issues. Right. And so they need originals. Like they can't, they're not making money on reruns. So right. good news is everybody's incentivized to get back to work quickly. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm optimistic in the past. I remember year. Mike was saying on his episode, he feels like in his mind, and this was like a little while ago, a month and a half ago, or something like that. But he was saying that he feels like it just needs to happen where like certain production companies or certain teams just start producing, like just start getting in there and filming. And then people will just learn from them. They just need one or two, you know, they need a few people to just start the ball rolling and having everyone learn from them essentially. Yeah. I mean, look, one of the things that's interesting is like we're stockpiling, you know, we're keeping track of all the COVID protocols from all the studios and networks. We send these, you know, massive memos. And one of the interesting things to observe is the idea that nobody knows what they're like. Everything's different. Everybody's protocols are different than the next guys. And all of which is to say there isn't a perfect playbook for all of this stuff. So Mike is right. But I, I also think, you know, one of the things that's gotten lost, you know, it's there are the media for the most part is based on the East Coast and New York got ter- terribly overrun by all of this. Now we have a better grip on it. And the numbers would see, you know, the idea that I don't think production is going to wholesale get shut down because somebody gets COVID on a set. I think production is wholesale going to get shut down if you know, infrastructure is overrun if hospitals capacity and if people start dying or becoming infirm or hospitalized. And I think there's a lot to suggest that that's really not that likely to happen. Like that we can probably, um, we can probably think of this as a fairly, there's a good chance that this is going to be a fairly, you know, upward trajectory in terms of production. There, there might be bumps in the road along the way, but, um, so, you know, that's good news. That's, we all need this, the health of, you know, the economy and people's livelihoods. For sure. You may have read about, you know, that there's a lot of issues, a lot of emotions flaring up in Screen Actors Guild about the health pension program. Insurance programs. and pension, yeah. Yeah, like people need to go to work. So, work. yeah. So, uh, another question I had just quickly was um, about casting. You were talking about how now you've just been through like, hundreds of casting, you know, sessions. And obviously it's a little different now, right? So most things are either self-tapes or you have these like, we're now transitioning into like Zoom audition callback situations. Any advice on that for for people who are looking to do more of that, casting people, actors? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm not the best person to ask. I certainly represent plenty of actors, but I would say I'm not really in the weeds as much about the intricacies of Zoom and all of that. I would say that, you know, as someone who has clients, you know, I represent a husband and wife, you know, actor, acting team who are, you know, very successful. They're each on a show or yeah. he's in a show and she's in a pilot, an NBC pilot. But they like basically left Brooklyn and bought a farm upstate and they've been there. They turned it into a farm. They just bought a property upstate. And, you know, representing a husband and wife is great because they make killer tapes because their person reading with you is always... Yeah at a hundred percent and they didn't miss a beat, you know, like they're turning out really quality work. So I, I would say you're right. Like the, and it, it's not just actors, but in general, like the idea, I hear this from writers all the time. Like nobody's driving across town from Santa Monica to Burbank anymore to take a general meeting with a mid-level development executive. It's like, yeah. it's just, it ruins your day. And I don't want to say it ruins your life in the hyperbolic sense, but like it just becomes a real drain in on a lot of levels. And so, and I think you know, the inverse is true in the acting world. It's not the actors that are no longer interested in driving to these things. It's the casting directors and producers and executives who are like, why do I need to carve out six hours at a shot where I can't return calls and emails when I can just watch these tapes. And then in my own you know, time certain directors, by the way, you know, Woody Allen doesn't audition people. He just meets with the ones he's interested in. Right. Clint Eastwood doesn't audition people. He just has people put on tape. He just never, as an actor himself, he just never wanted to put people through that. You know, it's an interesting moment to be in that business. Yeah. And I think COVID is, it's only going to, I hope make the idea of breaking through and breaking in a little more 
I don't know, utilitarian, a little more democratic, like in the same way that it's much easier to become a filmmaker now, there are plenty of challenges to becoming successful, but theoretically much easier to become a filmmaker with the technology that allows you to, you know, make a film in your house for lack of a better way of putting it final cut pro or whatever, like you can do it on your computer. I think we're going to see similar things in the acting world where people are going to be, I mean, you look at this girl, Rachel Ziegler, who yeah. I think that's the name, uh, West Side Story. Like, I think you're going to see more stories like that. Look, the movie star business isn't what it was, right? There's no. still Leo DiCaprio. There's still Brad Pitt. Yeah. There's still Robert Downey Jr., although his last movie struggled. But like, for the most part, these movies are the stars themselves, the Star Wars and the Marvel and the X-Men and, um, and all these things. And I think it does, the good news about that is the challenge is you have a declining middle class. You have people who are making six and even seven figure incomes as number three, four, five, six on the call sheet on these movies. And there's no longer going to get paid what they were getting paid because the movie star on the flip side is I think you're going to have opportunities for lesser known people, people from much more diverse backgrounds, culturally, ethnically, racially diverse backgrounds to, to break in because there's less of a need to just, I mean, unfortunately there's going to be lots of TikTok people and you know yep bullshit short form content creators who break through the pack because you know they have a following cynically executives are going to think you know they're going to they're going to bring more people with them i'm not convinced that that's true but yeah it's a zoom world right now and in a in a remote audition world right now and i don't think that's going to change and yeah i'm not i would have any advice but i would just say in general i think that can be a that can be a good thing for people in in your position yeah. And uh, what's next? What's next for you in general? What are you hoping for? You know, do you want, yeah, to, I mean, do you want to create more gonna... like films? Is it more TV? You know, do you want to do both? Is there any? Yeah. I mean, look, I, you're crazy not to place most of your emphasis on television because yeah. that's where the money is. And because you have opportunities to tell stories longer over a longer period of time, it's right. more lucrative because, you know, for all the obvious reasons, but I'm a contrarian by nature. And the more people say film is dead, the more it makes me want to make movies. Yeah. Um, and this one that I told you about, you know, Sounds seems great. to be that's going to happen and it's going to take up a lot of my, my bandwidth in 2021. What's next? You know, we have a good thing going up my company. We, we want to grow and expand. We want to do it smartly. There's a, a lot of agents who are realizing that the agency business is not as forward thinking as it might've been perceived as being a few years ago. Agencies have a lot of power, a lot of resources. They're a, they have a, they're a clearinghouse of activity and information. They're run by some really smart people, the big ones, and they're going to pivot and they're going to come to the other side of this just fine. Yeah. And, and that's fine. That's good. Right. But I do think it was not a good thing for the business in general, that so much power was consolidated with the agencies uh, and I think that the net effect of the, well, I told you you were going to see the four-year-old in here he is. Yay! The net effect of the, of the WGA ATA fight where agencies have been forced to give up packages has decentralized that power a little bit. And I think that's a good thing. And I think yeah. seeing these agents leave to become managers or form management companies only reinforces, I was talking to a guy from Anonymous this morning because he called me about a client that he wants to produce something with. And we were, you know, we were talking about it he was a, he's a former agent now manager. Mm. And we were saying like, it's, it only reinforces the strength of our business and our business model, like that agents are leaving that to do this. Right. So what's next. I'm not sure we're going to, as I said, we're going to continue to find smart ways to grow and yeah. promote people and hire people and hopefully come out this pandemic a little bit on our toes. I think yeah. when you're, when a bear comes out of hibernation, you know, my image of him is like, he's kind of, groggy, maybe a little confused. And I'm determined to be none of those things. I'm determined to come out of this on our toes and yeah. really to, to... I'm sure you will. Yeah. Yeah. One last question, because I, I know I keep extending, but I'm just curious, and this is a short probably answer, maybe. How much of your time in a given day do you... I mean, if there is anything like this, but percentage-wise, how much would you give to... Do you give usually to the management side of things, the production, to the development side? Is it Does it differ every day or... It differs every day. I think if you averaged it out over a two-week period, yeah. it would probably be 40% management and then fairly equally divided among administrative stuff. Right. Um, and um, uh, and development stuff and 
just general being thoughtful, like reading and, you know, reading, not knowing when you start reading it, whether it's for a client or for a project or for pleasure or because it's just, or, or because it's going to help my people become productive or think about things a different way. So I would say all those things probably take up the other 60% of my life. And I would say there are days where development and production take up more of that 60% than others and days where, you know, helping run the company take up almost all of it. Um, so it just Got depends. It. But I, it's it's one of the things I like, I prefer about this versus versus agent thing is you get to pivot, you get yeah. to have variety. You know, it's just, I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure I'm built for the same thing every day. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's, there's different, I'll put in the show notes, like different ways that people could see the work that you're doing. You know, obviously the great, is there anything else in particular that you want me to make sure that I tell listeners to check out? I'm not sure. It's a little too soon to call too much attention to the movie. Yeah. Um, No, just tell them to watch the great. Yeah. Tell them to watch. They just announced the air date, if that's the right way to put it on Quibi for the movie that we did with Soderbergh. Oh, cool. So I'll look it up. Yeah. Only a little mention of Mulan and a big mention of Soderbergh. Yeah. Which is perfectly, to be fair, perfectly understandable. But no, I don't, you know, I don't, it's funny because I don't, I'm not that interested in calling any attention to myself. It's the nature of what we're trying to call attention to our clients and other people. Yeah, I totally get that. All right. This has been fantastic. Um, I could extend this even longer, but I won't obviously, but this has just been great. Thanks for answering all my questions. Thanks for talking about yourself and your career. And if you have any follow-up questions, I'll talk to you soon. Hi everyone. This is Angelica from a little bit of everything with me. And you're listening to mentors on the mic podcast with Michelle Miller. All right, guys, thank you again for listening to this episode of Mentors on the Mic. I hope you enjoyed it. I also want to thank everyone who's been writing reviews and giving five stars. It's so appreciated. This one is from Q Wallace85, titled Fave Podcast. I love tuning in each week. It opens my eyes to more in entertainment. My kids are aspiring entertainers, and this podcast helps me understand a lot of how to plan, what to expect, and how processes work. Excellent podcast. Thanks. I really appreciate that, especially since I remember what it felt like to, as a kid, want to be an actress and... You know, my mother taking me around to some places and not knowing what things are scams and not knowing what's really happening behind the scenes when I'm on set or I'm on, you know, backstage at a show. And so I really appreciate that. So thank you so much, Q Wallace. And if you haven't left a review, please do under Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave a review. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Mentors on the Mic. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend you know would love it. Let me know what you learned or what stayed with you on our Instagram, at Mentors on the Mic. I will be sharing even more information about our mentors there. These are crazy times, and now more than ever, it's so important to connect. Talk to someone about what you learned today who would really appreciate it and send them the episode. Also, if you love the show, please go ahead and leave us a rating on iTunes. Every week I'm choosing a review to read on an episode. It really makes a huge difference in growing this. Thanks.